Hello, podcasting world, and welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. My name's Mike Corvino. With me is Cole Swanson. And check out mm-hmm. our new and improved room. Pretty excited. New and yes. improved room, new and improved table. Only took us about two hours to assemble. In our defense, they left the directions out of the box, so yeah. we had to completely wing it with our yeah. natural carpentry skills. And somehow there was like 46 pieces to put together one table, mm-hmm. but, um, but I don't know why. It worked out. We made it look easy. Yeah. Not like we would use the directions anyway, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, doubtful. We're basically engineers. I think so. So We'll, uh, we'll do yeah. a how-to video later on. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, the background uh, needs some work still. I'm gonna yeah, put some stuff up. It's still it's a work in progress. Plain, so people watching the video, yeah, it'll be okay. We'll make it look better. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so it's definitely better now. We can talk like this instead of uh, to the side and take our mouth away from the microphones. Yeah, the volume keeps changing, so hopefully this will improve the quality too. So we'll see. Excellent. I'm excited. Me too. It's pretty cool. We had to travel a long way to get to this new studio. Yes, many miles. Many miles. Up my stairs. <laughs> but we're ready to go. Yep. So today, we are going to be talking about the management of obesity. Yes. We're going to talk about some non-surgical options, go through some of the medications that we have, and then we're going to talk about bariatric surgery as well. Yep. So kind of regular obesity, non-severe obesity, and then the more uh, severe cases. Uh, we'll talk about bariatric surgery, which is something I didn't really know much about, but it's a pretty intense surgery. Not yes. going to lie. Very interesting, too. But it's Especially, very effective. It's come a long way. Yeah, for sure. All right, so where uh, where should we start? So obviously, the very first thing they try to do is diet and exercise. Right. So we're kind of, we're jumping the gun, we're kind of past that, and you know, this is assuming that the patients have already attempted lifestyle management, and now they need something else and right. not quite surgery yet but we're at pharmacological treatment options some type of drug therapy and for this um you know you would probably do more than just the standard okay for hypertension we're doing three months of diet and exercise and then if that doesn't work we'll put you on medication this might you know be a little bit of a longer process um patients who might be candidates would have a bmi probably greater than 30 or they'd have a BMI around 27 to 30 with other comorbidities who didn't meet a weight loss goal that you set. So maybe 5% uh, body weight over three to six months or something like that. And um, after much consideration with them, you consider drug therapy. Exactly. And then we also have to consider, too, that a lot of these patients that are coming for actual uh, you know, help from a physician or some other provider they're 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 coming there after they've already tried and failed multiple attempts at right. various diets, various exercise programs, maybe some pill that they saw on TV that says you can eat whatever you want, which we probably don't recommend. Yeah, yeah, never. I didn't have to change my eating habits. <laughs> the exact same. They tried to recruit me for the commercial, but I turned <laughs> them down. But uh, yeah, so this is this is when they're coming in and, and they've already tried some things. So they, you know, most of them have have been obese for a while and they've struggled with it. And we'll kind of jump right into the uh, the pharmacological pharmacological treatment options. But also keep in mind there's a lot of other things that you'd have to assess. Uh, you know, the patients 
psychological state, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, comorbidities. But right. And we've already, um, actually, we did a podcast kind of on nutrition. Yeah, that's right. We did one with uh, Adam. Yeah, did one with Adam. Was that like number two, number yeah, three? Yeah, two. So, oh, two. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's when he flew down. Yeah, so we could always go more in depth on nutrition in the different podcasts. There's a whole bunch there and exercise, but, you know, that was a good podcast. Um, our early days. Ten, way back when. Ten episodes ago. <laughs> way back when. It feels like a lifetime. Yeah, it does. But uh, for now, we'll focus on uh, the drug therapy, which obviously, like we said, there's a process uh, to get to before you start that. All right, so let's start it off. The uh, and I'm kind of skipping to the I don't want to say newer agents, but like fentramine, um, fentramethazine, the, the ones that have been around for a long time. We'll kind of skip those. Those you know the stimulants we're pretty familiar with, but let's jump right to Orlistat. Sure. So it's available over the counter. Um, that Ally pill, is right. the uh, brand name for it. A L L I. Yes. Yep. And uh, basically, it works by blocking pancreatic lipases. So uh, the enzymes that are secreted from the pancreas that allow you to absorb dietary fats, it blocks those. And so the fats are basically added to the fecal matter and excreted. Uh, Several issues with this as far as side effects. Mm -hmm. Normally, patients complain of abdominal pain. Um, patients will complain about headache, fatigue. Uh, Patients with diabetes have to worry about going uh, hypoglycemic. And the number one side effect, it's actually very, very common. It's everyone's favorite, oily rectal leakage. Those are my favorite. Yeah. Oh, cannot get enough of them. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that would be enough right there. I would just be like, no way. It's fatty poo. Fatty poo. Yeah. So not what you want. You don't want it. It's not ideal. Yeah. If, if a normal individual is eating a diet that contains about 30% fat, um, Orlistat's going to cause a dose-dependent increase in the fatty poo, essentially the excretion of fat <laughs> in the um, uh, in the excess. <laughs> to use a technical term, yeah. scientific term um, for for getting rid of the fat, um, but it would inhibit absorption. Of <laughs> <laughs> Lose it all control. Yes, it, it inhibits absorption about thirty percent. So uh, there was a study, and um, there's actually several <laughs> several studies. <laughs> Cole's out of control right now, laughing. So I'm trying to trying to regain composure. So there was a, a study um, that kind of comes to mind. Uh, three years. It was one of the first original studies that got it approved, and uh, it was three years long. And initially, had about 11 percent weight loss. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Cole's lost it. All right, I had 11% weight loss from baseline, um, that which is great. That sounds like a really good amount. Um, unfortunately, though, a lot of that weight started to come back. So by the end of the three years, uh, patients had lost about 6.9% from baseline. So definitely better than nothing, um, but uh, to deal with a long list of side effects for a long period of time, um, maybe not ideal. Yeah, with all, with all the side effects. Show. Definitely not my favorite, but I feel like it's probably used the most because it's over the counter, mm-hmm. so patients can get a hold of it. And sorry, I'm back now. <laughs> I've recovered. He's recovered. All right. Do you uh, you want to take the next one? Sure. So the next one you might be familiar with mainly from uh, diabetes. It's liraglutide, but we talked about it a little bit, probably referenced it in a couple podcasts, uh, but the brand name Saxinda has a different indication for the liraglutide. Again, it's a GLP-1 uh, agonist. 
the Saxenda uses a different dose than loraglutide does. It's up to the three milligram dose. Um, and we've talked before about why it um, can uh, cause weight loss and it can at the um, other doses too, but at three, that's what they've studied here. Um, but basically it can um, delay gastric emptying is one of the mechanisms. Um, another way is it um, can act on the hypothalamus essentially to increase satiety. So you're not as hungry. Um, and there's a third mechanism that is escaping me. So it can increase uh, satiety, but it also will uh, slow gastric emptying, right. decrease motility. Isn't there one more? Um, no, that's two. Okay, never mind. Loss. There's two. It'll obviously uh, increase insulin production. Right. Which, you know. So that's going to help with sugar. And some people would say, hey, you know, if we have an obese patient who also has type 2 diabetes, let's use Saxenda. Um, I guess that's okay, uh, but it's not indicated in, in for diabetes at this point, or not FDA approved for diabetes, just for uh, weight loss right now. So, um, and it seems to work pretty well um, in diabetes trials. Loraglutide at 1.8 or 3 milligrams daily was associated with significant weight reduction, um, like two to four kilograms or so, uh, which for those only in the U.S. is like what 4.4 to. 8.8 pounds or something like that. Um, either way, upwards of 10 pounds, um, and that was compared to glimepuride. So um, it can work, and that's definitely a benefit if you're using uh, Victoza in diabetes patients is the weight loss, but also Saxenda can be used. This one's an injection, though, so this would not be a pill that you take. Yeah, and, and for those of you who are confused now as far as wouldn't this cause significant hypoglycemia, um, one of the good things about a GLP-1 is they, they really only start working when you actually intake carbs. So it's not like a sulfonylurea or something like that that's going to drop your blood sugar regardless. This one will only drop the blood sugar when it needs to and appropriately. So I uh, don't really, you can, there's a, a potential, I guess, very low risk for hypoglycemia, but that's why you can use this one in patients that actually don't have diabetes. Right. Um, and also the contraindications for all the other GLP-1s are still in play. So if a patient has a... Uh, history or, or family history of medullary thyroid cancer or uh, multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2, they cannot have uh, this uh, liraglutide sexenda. All right, so the uh, next one is Locasarin Belvic is the brand name, and it is a uh, drug that activates the 5-HT2C receptors. Uh, and when those are activated, they, they stimulate pro-opioid melanocortin neurons to fire from the hypothalamus. This is going to release a hormone that's called alpha melanocortin stimulating hormone. Write that down. <laughs> um, and basically, that's when that's released, you're going to have satiety and decreased food intake as a result. And so that's a very fancy way of saying the exact same thing, basically, that the GLP-1s do. Right. Um, but it's kind of a little bit different pathway, I guess. And um, side effects, though, the the four from the trial that got it approved that were significantly different from placebo, uh, headache, nausea, back pain, and then nasal pharyngitis. So um, things you have to watch out for. It is selective for 5-HT2C uh, receptors, but um, any other drugs that are serotoner, uh, serotonergic can interact with it. You can get too much serotonin in the, in the system. Um, and it also does inhibit cytochrome P450 2D6. And so the uh, any drugs that are substrates of 2D6, you have to watch out for interactions with this. Yeah. 
I wasn't super familiar with that one, at least the generic name. Belvique I had heard of, but Lorca Sarin, or however you say it. Yeah. It's pretty expensive too. Yeah. So there are, uh, the drug company I think has discount cards, but um, I don't, I can't remember offhand how much they save, but definitely look for one of those before you shovel out that kind of money for the drug. Yeah. I think generally all of these are pretty expensive, except yeah. for maybe Ally, which for an OTC is kind of expensive, but yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's it for the um, single drug options. Um, there's a couple of combination options, one being a combination of fentramine and topiramate. So we already mentored, uh, mentioned fentramine. It's a uh, stimulant, and that's how it acts um, for weight loss. And then in combination with topiramate, um, it's supposed to be able to help. So uh, they definitely don't consider this a first-line option, so it would probably be for patients who um, have failed one of these other things that we talked about or fentramine as well. And they could consider this. Um, they recommend not using it in patients who have cardiovascular disease. Uh, it can increase heart rate a little bit. Um, in some of the trials, the uh, blood pressure um, increase wasn't particularly significant, but it can increase heart rate. Some other side effects would be dry mouth, uh, paresthesia, um, other psychiatric issues. Um, it can exacerbate those potentially um, or cognitive issues. So those are things you definitely want to be aware of with that one. Yes, and it's also uh, contraindicated in pregnancy. Yes. So there's a uh, REMS program associated with it to ensure that patients, uh, female patients that are not pregnant um, before starting it. Um, so the last one that we'll cover, I think, because we didn't actually figure out how many of these we were going to go over, so maybe Cole has <laughs> one more, I don't know. No, that's it. Um, the last one I have is Contrave, which is a combination of bupropion and naltrexone. Um Basically, the bupropion, we, we've known from using it in uh, depression and smoking cessation that you can get some weight loss from that. Um, that works in the hypothalamus as well and also works in the mesolimbic dopamine circuit, which is like kind of like your reward center. And so you get people have, just like any other addiction, people will have like this dopamine release when they eat. Um, you know, that's where we get the term comfort food. Right. And uh, so the bupropion blocks that to hopefully not give you that reward uh, stimuli whenever you are overeating. Um, however, there's supposedly like a negative feedback loop that will kind of override that eventually. And that's what the naltrexone is supposed to block so that bupropion just keeps working. Um, the mechanism is kind of in theory from everything that I've read. I don't think they've fully established exactly why. Um, it works to reduce weight, but it does. And I would be curious to see if you compare just bupropion to the combo, if you would see a significant difference. I would I would be surprised if you did. I would kind of think bupropion by itself would do enough. Right. But, yeah, those are the, uh, the, the you know, then there's definitely other ones that are older agents, but those are the main ones you'll probably see nowadays. Yeah, and, you know, it's we know that because patients on SSRIs and, um, even SNRIs can cause weight gain, so they might consider bupropion in a patient who they didn't want to gain weight. So yep. uh, we know that by itself it uh, can contribute to weight loss. So cool. So those are some of the pharmacologic options. Uh, there might be other ones, probably other over-the-counter things and supplements that people use. Um, probably just involves a whole bunch of caffeine and vitamins, that sort of thing. So um, generally recommend staying away from those. Ultimately, the good old diet and exercise and behavioral modifications really is kind of the best way to go. Right. Um, unfortunately, people just don't tend to be particularly motivated when it comes to weight loss. Exactly. 
So as far as, you know, why did bariatric surgery kind of even come about? Um, there's a review article that kind of goes through the various procedures and all that, and the three main reasons they kind of list, uh, basically the first one being just a huge increase in obesity. Uh, it's really accelerating how many patients we're seeing nowadays from like looking from the 80s till to now it's, right. it's increased significantly yep. and um, so just an overall population increase of obesity um, that's one of the reasons why we're really working to make these procedures as effective and safe as possible um, also they mentioned that you know obesity related mortality and morbidity are huge concerns yep. and the more we study and the more we learn about some of the different effects that obesity can have on the system, they just uh, really started to push the research now for bariatric surgery because we know uh, so many bad disease states can come about from long-term obesity. Yeah, and it's really starting at younger ages these days too, um, which is unfortunate, which leads to pretty much compounding snowball effect issues down the road and other comorbidities, complications, and um, death ultimately. So we want to get it under control. And the, the review article also mentioned as well. And if you, if you go through the trials for the individual, like medication options, you'll kind of see this, but the long-term effectiveness of these drugs is either lacking or just not there. Right. Um, they'll, they'll have some weight loss in the beginning, but you just, you don't really see the long-term, um, progression where they just continually lose weight and finally get down to their ideal body size a lot of them kind of either stay or they gain some of the weight back so the long-term effectiveness is definitely a limitation of the pharmacological options yeah no i think that's a good point because what what kind of outcome is four kilograms weight loss it sounds like oh great they lost eight to ten pounds or whatever um but what does that mean three months from now do they gain the weight back does it de- and ultimately does it decrease events? Does it decrease cardiovascular events? Does it decrease onset to diabetes and hypertension and other comorbidities? That's what you really want to know because the whole point of all of this is um, to decrease mortality, um, not necessarily for cosmetic reasons, even though that can have uh, positive effects on a patient's mood. Um, but those are the outcomes that we're interested in. So they came up with bariatric surgery which is actually pretty effective, right? Mm-hmm. It's getting, they're, they're getting better at it for yeah. sure. Yeah, it used to be, um, used to have a lot of issues and a lot of uh, post-operative complications, but it is definitely getting better. So the very first, um, which I did not realize this was actually a real thing, but reading through that review article, the very first uh, sort of documented procedure was jaw wiring. Yes. Which is How strange was that? Extremely effective. Yeah. If you wanted the person to have their jaw wired shut. Yeah. So they would literally wire. I mean, they would literally wire the jaw shut. That kind of blows my mind. But and they also had they had one. So one guy would wire the jaw shut and the other doctor would sit behind him and just yell, stop eating. (laughs) (laughs) No, the second part's not true. That's not true. Uh, but, but they, yeah, they did wiring. mention they mentioned that it kind of didn't work because the patients could drink uh, <laughs> such calorie rich liquids, so <laughs> they still got the calories. Yeah, um, Mountain Dew. So it was pretty much just a pretty horrible, um, brutal procedure that yeah. wasn't really effective. And then they said basically uniformly uh, the weight was all gained right back after the removal <laughs> of the <laughs> mandibular wires. Oh, my gosh. That is just terrible. I want to know who the first person that was to propose that and the first person that was like, yeah, I'll get it done. Right. That's, that's a good idea. That seems like that will go well. <laughs> Why are my Josh? 
That's crazy. Ugh, gosh. Yeah, not a fan. So it went on from there, and it ended up moving downward in the south direction um, to the stomach, and that's where it's primarily focused now. A little bit of background before we get into the different types of bariatric surgery. So like we mentioned, um, obese patients and obesity in general is leads to uh, comorbidities that are significant, right? Incl- uh, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, stroke, um, cancer, of course, um, a lot of mood issues, people not being confident in their body image, which uh, can have an effect on quality of life. So obesity is a significant issue. Um, and like we said, the drugs don't um, really have great long-term evidence. The behavioral approaches um, do have evidence if you do them, but it's hard to get patients motivated to do that consistently long-term. So that's why they came up with these bariatric surgeries. And they're becoming um, much more widely accepted since the 80s and um, since when they first started with the jaw wiring. Um, uh, Recently, uh, about 600,000 procedures are performed a year across the world. Uh, About 216,000 of those were in the U.S. and Canada in 2016. Um, other leading countries were like Brazil and France, uh, Mexico, United Kingdom was around 10,000 or so. Um, so definitely uh, increasing in the amount of patients who are getting these procedures. So that's going to be more patients in your clinic and in your outpatient pharmacies that you're going to see who have had these procedures. So it's important to understand them and um, to know how best to approach that and how best to treat them and what they need. Yes. So when when you think about a patient that's actually a candidate yes. um, for bariatric surgery, uh, there's a few different um, guidelines that, that you can kind of look at. The um, there's the American Bariatric Society, um, and the uh, they made the, their guidelines in 2004. So they have basically the candidates listed as an adult who has no comorbidities at all, just obesity. Um, if they have a BMI of 40 or greater, they can be a candidate. Um, if they do have even one comorbidity, it's 35 to 39.9 and obviously higher. But uh, they list a whole slew of yep. things as they consider comorbidities and that includes that type 2 diabetes, um, obstructive sleep apnea, hypertension. Um, there is non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease, just a ton. Asthma. GERD. Yes. So there's just a... Impaired quality of life. They list that as a criteria. Uh, yes, they do. Yeah. So. so if the patient endorses that this causes uh, problems with his activities of daily living or it's impairing his quality of life, then if he's over 35, you can consider it. Yes, exactly. Um, so I don't... I, as far as I know, um, there is only certain, like, I guess, hospitals, certain clinics um, where this is performed, some of them will have more strict guidelines that a patient would have to meet um, versus others that are a little bit more lenient. Um, Cole, you were saying the place that you were talking to. Yeah, um, they didn't have any. So some places have some, they might say, you need to lose, uh, you need to show that in this three-month span, you can lose 5% of your excess body fat or whatever before we'll consider you a candidate for surgery. Um, people I talk to, um, they have it where they just have to show that they can stick to a specific uh, diet regimen uh, before they'll be a candidate for surgery. So no weight loss um, limits there. But it's because after surgery, there is a strict diet that they have to adhere to or they will physically 
essentially be sick. So that's something to consider. I did want to mention patients can have it um, within the 30 to 35 range for BMI um, with a couple of very specific criteria. One, if um, they have uncontrollable type 2 diabetes, Mm -hmm. um, so it's just not being controlled even though they're a little bit thinner, Um, we'll talk about it, but it's because some of these procedures can actually cure type 2 diabetes, which is pretty incredible, Um, or just severe metabolic syndrome, so severe insulin resistance, you could consider it, and I think that's just really up to the specific surgeon who's um, performing the procedure. Yes. All right, so where do you want to start? Um, actually, before we start, I guess we should talk about who can't have it, um, yes. even if they meet those criteria. Yeah, that's a good point. Very quickly. Um, so one would be if a patient has a substance use disorder um, of drugs or alcohol. Um, many reasons for that, some being that the patients probably won't be able to adhere to the um, follow-up regimens, the medication regimens, and the diet regimens. Uh, is one thing. Another is patient's tolerance of alcohol is going to go way down after they've had these procedures, um, and it can cause uh, significant issues if they don't realize that. Um, Others are uh, untreated major depression or psychosis because these procedures can have a significant effect on mood, so patients will meet with psychologists generally afterwards uh, to follow up on that. Also, eating disorders, um, severe cardiac disease that would put them at risk with anesthesia, Um, if they have a severe coagulopathy, or if they can't comply with the nutritional requirements so they don't meet um, the specifications for the diet before having the procedure. So those are things to consider with these patients. Good stuff. Yep. All right, so where are we going to start with the actual procedure? Which one do you want to go with first? You you pick it. Sure. Uh, We can start with the sleeve. So um, there are a whole slew of procedures involving bands and various resections of certain parts of the um, intestine and stomach and staples and all kinds of things that are um, pretty considerate uh, for somebody who doesn't know a whole lot about surgery. Um, so there, But there are three main ones that are considered safe and um, relatively widely used. Um, one is a sleeve gastrectomy. So it's probably the lowest risk of the three that we'll talk about, generally speaking. Um, but it also has the lowest reward. So, uh, for example, this sleeve gastrectomy, which I'll kind of explain what it is in a second, um, at two years you can generally expect a weight loss of about 60% of your excess body fat. So that's not you know 60% of your whole entire person. But um, let's just say, for example, you're supposed to be, or your ideal body weight is 200 pounds, and you weigh 300 pounds, then you might lose 60% of that excess 100 Um, So that's what you can kind of expect. Long term, uh, it actually has pretty good data. Uh, It really depends on the patient, but it looks like long term, um, the rates are still considerable, not upwards of 60%, probably below 50, um, but a lot of patients do maintain adequate weight loss long term. Um, So basically what they're doing, it's a sleeve gastrectomy, so partial gastrectomy where uh, the greater curvature of the stomach is removed and a tubular stomach is created. Um, It's pretty much the the size of a banana might be one way you could describe it, so much smaller, considerably smaller than um, the previous stomach for sure. Um, And it uh, was initially offered in patients who had super severe obesity, so BMI is greater than 60 
um, but now it can be considered in those various patients that we talked about. Uh, but it is a little bit easier to perform than the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass that we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but like I said, low risk, low reward here. And this one is also not known to uh, cure diabetes like the other two we will talk about. Good stuff. Yep. So the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. And I, I wish we need to like make our own versions of pictures of this because <laughs> i don't want to steal anybody else's but uh it's pretty crazy to see especially this yeah. one yeah. Uh, so they basically take the stomach and they they divide uh the stomach pouch um and it creates a small this small pouch on, on top where it holds about an ounce of food and obviously that's going to make the patient full very quickly mm-hmm. um, and then over time it stretches a little bit but it still holds very small amounts of food even after periods of time after the surgery one way to describe it is the size of like a large egg yeah there you go and um the the small intestine then is connected from and, and continues down from that small egg of a stomach that the person now has and um so that the patient's not able to absorb the calories um near nearly as quickly because it's going right past most of the stomach uh, as well as most of the duodenum and the um, metabolism is also improved because you're getting a a massive release of all these uh, hormones. And specifically speaking, uh, GLP-1 is released, and that's one of the the reasons why we probably are seeing such quick uh, turnarounds with patients with diabetes um, returning back to, to normal hemoglobin A1C levels. Uh, because the GLP-1, obviously, we know from our medications is a is a great producer or driver, I guess, of insulin production. And so when you get these, these big natural secretions of it, it's probably helping these patients get their blood sugar under control. Yeah, and what's interesting is that it's not necessarily, okay, so they had this procedure, they lose weight over a period of six months to two years, and their A1C improves, and so we can quote-unquote say that it cures diabetes. Some patients, within 24 hours, it it cures diabetes. So it's it's pretty incredible. And like you said, they, they, they um, think it has to do with just this influx of hormones and a almost automatic decrease in insulin resistance, uh, but it's kind of unclear. So if anybody has a better explanation for why that happens, um, I'm definitely all ears because I think it's fascinating for sure. Dude, have we ever seen any, like I haven't personally seen like, I've heard of people saying the 24 hours. I've never seen any like documented case reports. Have no, you? No, I have not actually looked at them. We should so see if we can find them. Is... We will. Uh, we'll post them if we can find like officially documented. Because right. that's word of cases. mouth for yeah. me, unfortunately. So that's that's uh, and you heard it from reliable sources. But yeah, I just, yeah. Be people cool who we, work with these patients. If but. we can uh, get some documentation and actually post it on the website, that'd be pretty cool. Sure. And uh, one important thing about the ruin Y, which is uh, by far at this point the most common. So if you hear the, a patient, you might they might say I had gastric bypass. They might not necessarily had gastric bypass, but it's just a pretty ubiquitous term. Um, it's like calling Band-Aid Band-Aid because Band-Aid's a brand. It's not actually what those sticky substances that you put over wounds are. Um, people will say gastric bypass for any sort of um of a uh, uh, bariatric procedure, but this is specifically the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, very common. In the sleeve gastrectomy, um, they do actually remove the stomach and replace it with that banana-like sleeve. Um, in the Roux-en-Y, the stomach actually stays in, they just separate it from that egg-like pouch. So the stomach contents are still connected to a 
piece of the intestine, which they um, essentially divert further down um, the intestinal process so that those juices and enzymes and whatnot can continue with uh, the digested food um, and kind of continue that process. So that's a big distinction between these two is that the stomach is actually still there. Yeah, which is crazy. I think this is fascinating. I I apparently just don't know anything about surgeries. I'm also kind of mind-blowing about the whole Band-Aid situation because I have actually never <laughs> put that together in my own head. But, yeah, I was speechless when you were talking about that. Yeah, brand name registered trademark. Interestingly, it's actually not registered trademark anymore. They officially had that removed because it became so um, commonplace to call it Band-Aid. But Cle- nice of them. Kleenex is the same way. That, that's yeah. a brand Yeah, it's true. for little thin pieces of tissue paper. The Kleenex thing, I can I can get my head around that. But yeah. the Band-Aid, yeah, yeah that's... Um, that's whew. Band-Aid brand because Band-Aid sticks on me. That's it's a that's they had to specifically say Band-Aid brand, not Band-Aid, but mm. Band-Aid brand, so you would know that. I always thought that was just a filler. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, they're just trying to make a good jingle. Amazing. You just got you a taste of here. my singing voice, by the way. So yeah. that's that's official now. Voice of an angel. <laughs> All right, so you want to go through the third one? Sure. Um, <laughs> well, I will attempt to go through the third one. You like how I just immediately jump back. <laughs> <laughs> down no, the rabbit hole no, sh- no, shoot the rabbit no, boom. yeah no segue right back yeah, we're good back to it anyways uh so the third one is kind of an extension of the um sl- or not an extension but a um similar to the sleeve gastrectomy just like way more complex uh, so it's called the biliopancreatic diversion with a duodenal switch um i will encourage you to look that up and read about it because I'm not going to attempt to go through all the different uh, pieces of that because it's extremely complex. And that should tell you something. So with the sleeve gastrectomy, I mentioned that you can expect around 60% um, excess weight loss. With the um, Ruin Y, you're looking at about 70%. Um, so it's a little bit higher risk, but higher reward. The, um, the switch is what they call it, but the duodenal switch is the highest risk but highest reward. Um, so you might see between 70 and 80% excess weight loss, which is just, I mean, incredible. Um, so yeah, I won't go into the um, whole process of that, uh, but there is also just a biliopancreatic diversion, but this is specifically with duodenal switch. So um, extremely effective long-term weight loss, um, extremely effective um cure rate for diabetes which i don't actually have a number on that but apparently it works very well um i want to um, say it's like two-thirds of patients or 60 percent it's, it's pretty high it's pretty significant which is just amazing um which i i definitely i think there's a negative connotation out there about bariatric surgeries even among healthcare professionals who don't uh, interact with it very much but definitely with the lay public um that patients might elect to have these done for cosmetic purposes and they just want to lose weight. Um, But that's really generally not the case. From talking to people who work with these patients and talking to a few patients um, who've had this done, it's generally that these patients have tried everything. I mean, if you say, so what diets have you tried? Because that's a pretty standard question to ask them. They will literally list every diet known to man that they've tried. They've tried exercise. They've tried other medications. um, And they are just such high risk now. Uh, Because even though you can have a BMI of 35 or 40 or whatever, um, in a lot of the studies, the average BMIs were in the 60s. So these are um, pretty severely obese patients who are having this considered. Um, and uh, it is more common in females than males, um, for the most part, but, um, not to a significant degree. Um, but yeah, so it's, 
it's it's definitely patients who have tried everything. Um, they're very high risk. Their doctors are recommending this, and they're not just doing it for cosmetic purposes. Good deal. So, what do you think? Should we go over the uh, like the post surgery kind of macro and micronutrients? Sure, for sure. Yeah. So the, the follow up is it pretty much depends on your institution, but some. Uh, places follow up one week after, then a month, uh, then three months, six months, and then a year. Um, but they're just going to monitor for what Mike is about to talk about. But a lot of uh, post-surgical complications you want to be aware of. So there's there's several different, especially the micronutrients, there's several different things listed. And, you know, just to go through some of these, these are all things that you're familiar with. You know, iron, B12, folate, thiamine, um, calcium, D3, vitamin A, um, z- even things like zinc, copper, selenium, magnesium uh, are all potentials. Uh, now, a lot of times these patients can get most of these just from uh, like a daily multivitamin. Um, but some of the uh, literature out there will will suggest having these uh, on board to prevent deficiencies um, because the patients are not able to absorb some of these micronutrients from their diet anymore. Um, sure. And so especially uh, iron, they say that uh, women of childbearing age and individuals with a history of iron deficiency, so iron deficiency anemia, um, need to have 45 to 60 milligrams of, of iron for sure. So it's about, um, that's a little under like one ferrous sulfate 325, which is about 65 milligrams of elemental iron. So you're thinking about one of those a day is enough to, to supplement, but um, you don't want these patients going anemic after this type of surgery. Yeah. Um, B12 is... Uh, essential after um, here listed they have all bariatric procedures so um, they don't list a resource on that so I'm not sure if that's 100% accurate but um, I, w- I could see that because if you're disrupting the stomach that much then I'm assuming you're getting rid of intrinsic factor and sure so there's you're not able to absorb it so my understanding is there's definitely potential for that so you definitely want to get um, all patients who have this procedure on vitamins which um, there a lot of um, institutions might have a specific vitamin that they recommend some page people say it's kind of the equivalent of two flintstone vitamins um, it really just depends just making sure you get everything you want in there calcium and vitamin d is another thing even though there hasn't been a correlation with increased osteoporosis development or fracture risk from these procedures but you just want to make sure that um, they have everything they need on board uh, but specifically to that it does depend on the procedure um, how severe the vitamin deficiencies are so with the sleeve gastrectomy it's not as important that they have the vi- vitamin on board but you're not really going to tell them that because you want them to take that multivitamin because it's not going to hurt them. Um, but in some cases, it could be harmful if they don't have it on. With the Ruin Y, and especially the switch, you have to have the vitamin on board or these patients will be deficient in nutrients um, because their nutrition, which we're not going to get super in-depth on that today, is extremely restricted at this point. You mentioned that he said one ounce um the some people say 30 mils so just imagine how much that is those of you who measure out you know water in a graduated cylinder every once in a while 30 mils isn't a whole lot for a meal Um, so they generally recommend especially at the beginning starting out with four to six small meals a day and um, they might call them like snack like meals they don't really use the word snack because that has a negative connotation for you know chips and soda and whatnot Um, but snack sized meals and uh, they also recommend at the beginning not drinking any water 
30 minutes before or 30 minutes after eating or the water will just fill them up and they won't be hungry. So they're not going to get the nutrition, the nutritions, um, the nutrients, man, I just mixed two words. Um, so it's never been done before. Uh, so you want their, um, nutrition to be high in lean proteins. You want them to get all the vitamins and minerals, a lot of vegetables. They can have fruit, but you want to be careful with, um, too much sugar. Um, so stay away from the excess sugar, stay away from the excess fat. Uh, one risk is dumping syndrome where apparently if they, um, have too much sugar or fat, it could more or less go right through them and, um, cause a pretty severe sickness, um, causing shaking and sweating like a severe hypoglycemia with diarrhea, nausea and vomiting. So, um, they will, most patients do experience that at least once. Um, a lot of patients actually have some, um, like every once in a while, every week or every month vomiting episodes sometimes throughout their entire lives but they actually say that that's not really that big of a deal what is a big deal is the dumping syndrome so it's important that they get very good nutrition counseling which they'll almost always have a dietitian on board at these bariatric clinics um, to counsel the patient on all of that Uh, but that's just a a few considerations for these patients along with the nutrition i mean the um the multivitamin and there is a lot of uh, these procedures that are still under investigation. Um, I'm going to just read some of these off that they're actually currently looking at. So just investigational, they have uh, intragastric balloon. They have hmm. aspiration therapy. They have a endoluminal vertical gastroplasty. I don't know any of these are, by the way. I haven't done, I've done zero <laughs> research. I'm just reading. Um, endoscopic gastrointestinal bypass devices. That sounds interesting. Uh, vagal blockade. Mm. So there's there's several that they're under investigation right now. So I'm, I'm sure this is just like anything else in medicine right now. It's going to evolve very, very quickly. Sure. And uh, all the stuff we just said will be out of date in six months, and we'll get to do another one. There you go. And, um, yeah, I should point out that uh, even though – these um, treatments are much safer or these procedures are much safer. There's always concerns when you're having any type of surgical procedure. Um, You're being put under general anesthesia, so that's a consideration. Uh, Bleeding risks down the road, um, various other surgical complications. These are all done primarily laparoscopically now, which is just much better as far as wound healing and scars and risk for infection. Um, so that's a definite positive. So they've come a long way there. Uh, but there are still risks associated associated with this. So even though the weight loss is incredible, um, curing diabetes, potentially improving their blood pressure to the point where we haven't even talked much about medications. So we can do a whole other podcast specifically on medications in these patients. Um, but some considerations are generally avoiding extended release and sustained release medications. Um, you can assume why because these patients more or less don't have a stomach. So there's nowhere for the um, pills to sit and really slowly so it's just you're going to get it all at once so um, those aren't really effective and these uh, patients are going to have a lot of medications on board because they have a lot of comorbidities Um, so after the procedure it could drastically change they might come off of their metformin and insulin and come off of their blood pressure medications but now they need um, daily multivitamins and strict nutrition counseling so it all just kind of shifts and it's important to have a um you know, a pharmacist on the team, a dietitian on the team, um, a provider following them, a psychologist to monitor their mood because a lot of these patients can have suicidal ideation, um, all keeping up with these patients to make sure that they have positive outcomes going forward 
and they sustain the weight loss because that's that's the idea in prolonged life. Yes, and they've actually done uh, studies as well uh, looking at um, total direct health care costs and actually have seen reductions um, in health care costs for patients who have ha- undergone surgery versus ones that have not. Sure. So, oh, And that was over, the one I'm looking at currently was only over five years following surgery. So it's actually a cost savings as far as their day-to-day maintenance meds and health and all that. So, Yeah, and, also- and to that point, um, I'm pretty sure Medicaid will cover bariatric surgery under certain conditions now. So uh, you know they're not covering it unless it's cost-effective. So mm-hmm. that's definitely a plus. Definitely a plus. Absolutely. And that is bariatric surgery. There you go. Did we just take on bariatric surgery? I think we did. Random. And next week, we're going to actually perform one. Right. <laughs> we just need a volunteer from the audience. Anybody? Anybody up for it? So, now we'll leave that to the professionals. The professionals, because that's not us, yeah. for sure. Nope. I just talk about the pills. <laughs> No, so good stuff. Um, that's uh, we'll definitely go into more detail later on, and um, you talk more about that and, and different comorbidities and things that can kind of uh, complicate things. But we wanted to make sure we covered that because it's kind of an off topic that not a lot of people have addressed. So yeah. figured we'd tackle that and see how it goes. Yeah, but oh. my my PSA for this one is be open minded about it for patients who might consider it, um, because it really can be a significant benefit for someone who is really uncontrolled, really obese, and, I mean, just on the verge of a heart attack, maybe this this saves their life. So consider it. Yep, yep. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Make sure you contact us if you have any questions. Uh, email is always mcorvino at coreconsultrx.com. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and um, make sure you, you leave us a, a comment or rating. That really helps us out as well. Uh, we would definitely appreciate it. Uh, check out the Alexa Flash Briefing for those of you who want much shorter versions of things like this. And uh, you don't want to hear us talking nonsense. <laughs> yeah, and you don't have to hear as much laughing and such <laughs> on the Alexa. Uh, and then also on all the social media platforms. I won't go through them all, but you know the big ones, Instagram, Facebook etc yeah and let us know what you think about the new studio we're we're trying to figure out what to do with the background uh we have limited space to work with so if you have any recommendations let us know yeah i'm i'm voting batman poster but yeah. we're gonna i like it keep dark night keep Ma- that in our back pocket for now maybe a joker poster just yeah. right beside it it's a good idea i think it's i think it's done <laughs> all, all right, right never mind you'll not have to email us <laughs> yeah, never mind we decided all right we'll see you guys next time